gives us so many words as how to praise him and honor him. It is my favorite book. Thank you, Pastor Ken, for doing it. The lesson this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 1, reading verses 8, 4 to 8 inclusive. Greetings and doxology. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the word of the Lord. Thanks, Del. Your favorite book of the Bible. That's very cool. It does show us who God is and who Christ is, his character, his actions. So. No other book like it, so thank you. We, uh, last week, we started our study of the book of Revelation, uh, not Revelations. It is in its whole, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And verses 1 to 3 are a prologue to the book. The book is a letter from John to the seven churches and begins in a kind of a standard way. When I was... a child, my mom used to make me write letters to my siblings who lived away from home. And I didn't know how to write letters. My letters had a standard opening. It was, dear whoever, how are you? How are you? I am fine. And then was stuck. I didn't know what to write. That was my standard opening, and then I didn't know what to write. John writes his letter with a standard opening. A to be blessing from God. You have a whole bunch of letters in the New Testament that start this way. So, Ken, to the people of Thornhill Baptist Church, grace and peace to you from Jesus. Something like that. So, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And the description that he gives of God is a remarkable one, to say the least. It's a blessing from the Trinity, from the triune, from the three-in-one God. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So him who is and who was and who is to come. 
is a reference to God the Father, who is on the throne of heaven. He calls himself that in chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. In chapter 4, verse 8, the four heavenly creatures call him the same thing. When he gave his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, he called himself I am, or I am that I am. Past, present, future. Who was and is, is to come. The self-existent one. Whatever, I just, I just am. The seven spirits before his throne, that's an odd way to describe the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The reference comes from the Old Testament book of Zechariah 4, verse 2, when the prophet Zechariah has a vision which includes seven lambs and seven channels to the lambs. In verse 10, Zechariah 4, verse 10, the seven are the eyes of the Lord, which reigns through the whole earth. And what is the meaning of what Zechariah saw? Not by might, nor by power, but my, my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then John mentions the third member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And the description that he gives of Jesus is loaded with stuff. It's a very rich passage. He talks of who Jesus is. He talks of what Jesus has done. Who is Jesus? He is Lord. What has Jesus done? He is Savior. So, Jesus is Lord, first of all. This is the classic definition of faith in the first century. A Christian was one who says, Jesus is Lord. Now, later on, it got them in serious trouble because Caesar was Lord. And there's only room in this town for one Lord. And Christians said, yes, there's only room in this town for one Lord. But Jesus is Lord. And this is, by the way, different from saying, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord is a statement regarding Jesus' relationship to me and my relationship to him. Jesus is Lord is a statement regarding Jesus' relationship to everyone and everything and everyone's relationship to him. For me to say Jesus is Lord is for me to make a statement regarding your relationship with Jesus and his relationship to you. Jesus is your Lord and not just mine. Every once in a while, you see a car with a uh, Jesus is Lord flag on it. And they think they're worth anything. I don't know. I, I'm not sure anyone would bow the knee to Christ because they see a flag. But it impresses me that people are so bold as to stick Jesus is Lord on their car and drive throughout the city. But what they're proclaiming is nevertheless true. Jesus is Lord. He's the risen Lord. He is a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. He's a risen Lord. He emerged out the other side of death. Death had one try at him and lost, and it doesn't get another. Romans, uh, sorry, verse 18 of chapter 1, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Romans 6, verse 9, we know that Christ, 
being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him. And in Romans 6, back to verse 5, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. Lazarus was resurrected only to die again. Tabitha was resurrected only to die again. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead and stay risen. And after his resurrection, he keeps reaching back and pulling people out of death to share in his resurrection. Now, does the fact that Jesus is alive mean anything to you? It meant something to the Christians in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You, too, will rise from the dead and stay risen. It meant something to Christians at Pergamon, chapter 2, verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. You know, things are getting pretty rough over here. Antipas was killed, but we will remain faithful. We will cling to Christ, even though it costs us our lives. The fact that Jesus is risen, is alive, means something to the Christians around the world. Today, in some country, Iran, Colombia, Egypt, somebody who names the name of Christ will die for it. That Christ is raised, that they share in his resurrection, gives them hope. So what does it mean for you? You who are facing death too soon? You have lost a loved one. You're a widow or a widower. You've lost a parent or a child. Those of us who face death, and we all do, share the hope of his resurrection. When you face the criticism of friends, when life seems overwhelming, Jesus is alive and he's with you. So when we say with flag on our car or profess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, that means everything to us. Jesus is the risen Lord. Jesus is also the reigning Lord. The reigning Lord, the ruler of kings on earth. In a history full of great kings, Alexander the Great, Charlemagne, Montezuma, all are under the reign of Jesus. All will bow the knee to him and call him Lord. Jesus, born in backwater Judah, an itinerant preacher who died a criminal's death on the cross, he is Lord even over Caesar, Lord over all the kings on earth. And even when Caesar put to death the followers of Jesus, they had hoped that the last word belonged to Jesus and not Caesar. Jesus is ruler of kings, of prime ministers, of presidents, of governments. Jesus is ruler of North America or China and Iran. Jesus is ruler of school bullies and unscrupulous managers. You're not the boss of me. Well, yes, Jesus is the boss of them. 
when his people seem at the mercy of these people, he will vindicate him. He prepares a table for them in the sight of their enemies. But he reigns over you too, and me. And we will answer every answer someday for every word spoken and every act performed, every vicious word, every act of unjust anger, every dishonoring of our parents, every way we have provoked our children to anger, every word of criticism, everything. And then we'll know how great is the grace of God. He's the risen Lord. More than that, he's the reigning Lord. But more than that yet, he is the returning Lord. Verse 7, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. He's coming with the clouds. Now, he won't come all wet from the moisture of the clouds. Clouds in the Bible refers to God's glory. A cloud led the Israelites to the wilderness. A cloud descended on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. A cloud filled the temple. Jesus was surrounded by a cloud when he was transfigured. He said to the high priest that he would someday see the Son of Man come in the clouds of heaven. A quote from Daniel 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. It's interesting to note that Jesus most often referred to himself as the son of man. So he will come with the glory of heaven, and every eye will see him and bow the knee and declare that Jesus is Lord. Those who uh, pierced him, priests and soldiers, will witness it as will the enemies of Christ throughout history, as will all his people, everyone. And all the tribes, of, all the tribes on earth will wail with gnashing of teeth. They will say, ah, it's true. We were his enemies, and here he is in triumph. Jesus is coming again. How many of us live with any thought to this reality? If I was to say to you, do you want Jesus to come today? What would you say? Not yet. I've heard people say that. I want to do things first. I want my kids to experience certain things. I want to be married. I have a bucket list to accomplish first. Or do you want Jesus to come back? Yes. No homework. We don't think that when Jesus returns, that he will take us into a reality that far exceeds anything the world holds for us. And no homework is not the best thing that Jesus' return will bring. How many of us live with the reality that, yes, we need stuff to live on this earth, but none of it will last? Not money, not toys, not ambition, but neither will Mourning or crying or pain or divorce or loneliness or bullying. Neither will starvation or war or Ebola or any other disease. So how many of us live with a conscious knowledge and hope that he's returning? 
Jesus will return to a new heaven and a new earth, and none of this stuff will matter. We serve a risen and reigning and returning Lord. But Jesus is more than that. He's not just the Lord. He is Savior. Isn't it amazing that the one before whom we and all people who have ever lived will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord of all things everywhere? Isn't it amazing that he should be our Savior? And as our Savior, he loves us. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer, no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now think of it. The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. The one whose lordship we flout every time we sin, the one against whom everything wrong we do is a crime, he loved us, and he gave himself for us. I mentioned a few weeks ago, or maybe last week, the Bible repeatedly frames the love of Christ in terms of the cross. Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his own love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 5.1 and 2 Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5 verse 25 Husband Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 John 4, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son in the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 3, verse 16, by this, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. He died for you. He bore the mocking of mankind who he reigned over for you. He bore the wrath of a holy God for you. This is amazing love that you, my king, would die for me. Jesus loved and loves us. But more than that, he is the Savior who frees us. That's why he died, to free us from sin. Verse 9, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Now, I think he frees us from the ability to sin. Um, I think no Christian sins unless we choose to. I don't think there is such a thing as I couldn't help it. Or I'm just not ready to forgive. But I think more importantly, he frees us from the power of sin. Sin no longer has the power to stand between us and God. Sin no longer has the power of hanging the reality of sin over our heads. Sin no longer has the power of enslaving us. 
by his death, Jesus has borne the wrath of God against sin and against us as sinners. And God is free to embrace us as his children. Jesus does more than just forgive us. He frees us. This is classic New Testament theology. Every time the apostles spoke, either to crowds or small groups, Acts 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Chapter 3, repent therefore and turn away so that your sins may be blotted out. Chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. In chapter 5, and 10, and 13, in Ephesians 1, and 2, and Colossians 1, and so on. This is how the apostles interpreted the death of Christ. Jesus loves us, and Jesus has freed us from sin. But more than that, Jesus is a Savior who has made us, made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. These are the words that God spoke to Israel at the, birth, uh, at the birth as a nation when they were at Mount Sinai. Now, therefore, if you indeed hear my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And use similar language in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, speaking to the non-Jews, us. A royal, the kingdom word, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Say a bully beat you up in school, or a robber robbed your house and got caught. What would you say if he got punished? Either beat up himself or several years in prison? Often when someone commits murder, the victim's loved ones hope for the worst possible sentence. And when he gets it, they say, serve him right. And when they get, for whatever reason, less than the maximum sentence, they complain loudly and publicly that the murderer didn't get what he deserved. We know that people who do wrong, whether bullies or robbers or murderers, they deserve the punishment that they get, whatever it is, even if they're sorry. Now, all the things that we do, as I said to the kids earlier, all the things that we do that run counter to God's will and character are crimes against God. And what if by believing that Jesus went to jail for us, in essence, God freed us from our sins? What a privilege that is. Freedom. But say he went further. What if he invited us to be his ambassadors, to represent him to other sinners? What if he went still further? What if he invited us to live with him? And what if he went still further? What if... What if he invited us to rule with him? Jesus said a few minutes later, Revelation 3, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father and sat on his throne. 
we who are cosmic criminals of the worst kind, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And then I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus said this of himself in Revelation 22, verse 13. In other words, I am the A and the Z and everything in between. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. My word is this, uh, this book is my word, and you can trust what is written in it. I have said it, it will happen, and it has happened. Jesus does and has loved us. He does and is freeing us from our sins. He has and is made us to be a kingdom of priests to his Father. And as the book of Revelation describes, his work will culminate at the end of history. So what does this mean for us? It's very simple. Jesus is a risen and reigning and returning Lord who loves us, has freed us from sin, and made us to be a kingdom of priests to his Father. That means that we submit our lives to a risen Lord, to a living Lord. In times of trials, corporate or individual, whether dislike of people who, for whatever reason, matter to us, or a culture that expresses hostility to Christ and his church, or for our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for his name, and we can't read Revelation without them far from our minds. In these times of trials, we belong to him. We don't just follow him, but we're his treasured possession, and he takes care of what is his own. He lives, he will always live, so we're in good hands. He is coming back. He's coming back the victor. So be encouraged, whatever your situation, Christ wins. Revelation is about the triumph of the risen, reigning, and returning Lord over all the forces of evil. And we are his. Amen. Let's pray. I thank you for this book and for what it reminds us of you. Jesus, you are the living Lord. You are king over all things everywhere. And we look forward to your return. Thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you have freed us from our sins. You have made us to be a kingdom of priests. We stand in awe what you have done for us who didn't deserve it in the least. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. And as we go from here, help, to help us to go in the knowledge of you, living, light, living life in light of your return. Help us to walk with you 
because we were mindful of your faithfulness, your walking with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing hymn number 61.